Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh generation witch. I was laying there, practically naked, and I had her hold me as if I was naked. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence of human sacrifice? Normal, and we are at the Paradigm Symposium. Yes, we are finally. Mr. Rob here next to me, and uh, Mr. Luke, the Sky Rider, the co-host, the co-host with the most, <laughs> whatever he is. Uh, just drifter. Yeah. <laughs> so we just saw the first speaker, which was Lawn Milo Duquette. Uh, that was very interesting. Kind of yeah. right up your alley a little bit. It was, bit there, dude. Luke. It was awesome. Very, uh, interesting concept. What'd you get out of that? Um, well, I was like I was telling Rob earlier. Uh, I've tried to research Solomon before, and there's just yeah. there's really nothing on him. Like there's really not much information. It's just like, oh yeah, he was a a king. <laughs> That's all you get. You don't really get much else. Well, what he was doing, he was looking at the concept of Solomon, and he started talking about what's that? The uh, Goetia? Is that how you pronounce Go- that? Uh, Go- Goetia, he said. Yeah. Uh, that's all kind of weird, the, the interesting kind of, of stuff. Uh, demonology, like demonology summoning yeah. invocation. So they started talking about how um, 
basically everything in the Bible from like 1200 something BC to 600 something BC was wasn't real. Yeah, T- entirely unfounded. Yeah, well, we're, we're, he's going to be one of the many that we'll we'll talk to here. Um, he's actually we're in a like kind of a confined space here at the Templar Lodge in St. Louis Park. Uh, Minnesota, right and, outside of Minneapolis. And this place is sweet, by the way. The the gallery uh, yeah. is, has the four directions and stone walls and shields painted all on the walls yep. and uh, uh, magnificent chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> I didn't see any <laughs> chandeliers. Well, you weren't looking. I got to look up, I guess, yeah. man. Uh, There's thrones at the corners. Yeah, thrones. We're gonna give you a picture, a picture in the, in, <laughs> on the throne. And uh, man, I know we're in Minnesota, but it's May. I didn't realize it was gonna be so cold here. Yeah, all all we brought, Adam and I, is just uh, shirts and shorts. No, I have long, long oh, pants. Well, never mind. Well, you didn't have to say that. Shirt, but, you know. <laughs> Rob is. I was gonna say Rob's the only smart one. I grew That's up. True. I grew but up, you up just here. Just took some of that credit away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob. Uh, we drove a bunch yesterday. Oh, we did. 16 hours from Nashville to Minneapolis. We, did, we didn't, at one point, we didn't even think that Minnesota actually existed. <laughs> we thought it might just all be a lie. <laughs> we we all got pretty grumpy there at one point. Yeah. Well, I had uh, I'd worked the night before. I got home at like, God, 12 o'clock after this massive uh, hailstorm that we had in Nashville. Didn't get to bed till probably around twelve forty-five, one. Had to wake wake up at three forty-five so we could get we could roll on out the door. <laughs> and we finally got out of Nashville by like what five thirty in the morning, and we got to here in Minneapolis at nine o'clock. Yeah, eight thirty to nine, somewhere like that. And it wasn't so it was, dark it yet was either. A, that was, no, that was no, another it wasn't. super weird thing. And like it's, it it rained for us quite a lot. Like we got a lot of rain in Kentucky, and then as we we're pulling into Minneapolis. All of a sudden, the clouds broke and the sun came out because the <laughs> sun was, was still out at like. That was pretty amazing. Like, <laughs> we came out of St. Paul and it was like these low clouds, and then yeah. the sun setting behind uh-huh. it was like picturesque. This is your destination <laughs> and your reward all in one. Yeah, it was absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And the, the city has a lot to offer too. I was reading about it on the way up. There's a lot of uh, art and like culture around here to to check out. So. In the Mall of America, we're right. about that. If anyone's interested, Luke did find out that it is the uh, seventh uh, gay-friendly city. <laughs> no, in the you United just go States. ahead and say gayest because that's how Wikipedia said it. Okay, well, if Wikipedia <laughs> says it, then I guess it, it's, yeah, a, it's I guess good. it's PC enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's moderated, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in a small little space here in a side room. Uh, We've got like Peter Robbins right in front of us, who we're hoping we're going to get to interview with a couple other people that we're going to try to sit down. I'm going to try to cover just about every guest that we possibly can that's here. Yeah, and at least yeah. get twenty to thirty minutes out of out of them. So there's nothing to add, guys. We will just go on to interviews. However, that's going to be structured. No idea who's coming up. Just whoever wants to sit down with us. So Luke, take us out. Can't wait for beers after this. All right, yeah, beers at the Mall of America. Yeah, <laughs> all right, guys. That's what I came we'll be for. back. We'll be back right after this on Conspiracy Normal. All right, guys. We are back. It is the next day. It is Saturday, May fourteenth. We survived Friday the thirteenth, and uh, around me. One of our favorite subjects that we like to talk about, as everybody knows, is, U- is UFOs. 
And around me, I have a brain trust. I have Mr. Micah Hanks right next to me. Hi, Adam. <laughs> across the table, Peter Robbins. Good morning, Adam. <laughs> Good morning, sir. Thank you for being here. Hey, both of you guys have been on our show before. Mike has been on like 50,000 times. Peter, you've been on twice. And we have a new guest and someone that uh, I'm going to get on very, on the show very soon, Mr. Richard Dolan. Who's that? Yeah. Glad to be here. Thanks. <laughs> very happy to have you, Richard. Great. Very happy to have you. And it's Thank very you, cool that we have, we actually have a common friend in uh, Mr. Guy Malone. Yes, we do. Listening. Peter's a good friend. Absolutely. Which, yeah. Micah, you've never met him. but I've never met Guy, but we've spoken before. Yeah. Cool. Yes, in fact, I don't think he really wants to meet you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was there right. that day. He yeah. Was, yeah. He was with us at that, at that point. It was very nice. Yeah. So in the uh, immortal words of uh, Hami Masan, I want to know what you know about UFOs. You're asking me? <laughs> I don't know, but I noticed you've got a new microphone. That's really nice. And, and look, look, you're, you're closer than a foot away from it. So I, I know, man. It's I like, know. wow, this is sounding great. No, no, I, I, these are good microphones. Um, what, what do I know about UFOs? Um, I, I think that I lay more claim. And maybe what my you know about UFOs? Well, my colleagues across the table, I hope, will agree. I, I claim more to what I don't know about UFOs. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the thing, and this is what Edward, Edward Ruppelt had said in the middle 1950s. He said, you know, within a few decades, we'll have this clinched. We'll have this solved. I'm confident we'll know what the UFO phenomena is. Now, we have a lot of good ideas about what the UFO phenomena may be, but I don't think we have a conclusive, uh, you know, understanding of this phenomena. There's still a lot of hypotheticals, still a lot of possibilities, and a lot of avenues that need, I think, to be whittled down, perhaps within the community, a consensus opinion uh, developed, and, and then a, a broader uh, and better, more focused understanding proceeding forward applied to trying to understand exactly what do we know about UFOs. <laughs> so uh, long-time listeners, of course, will know the uh, reference you're making to yeah, Rick Nedfern uh, uh. there. But uh, yeah, so for me, actually, it's less what I know. I really am saying I think we need to focus on what we don't know and how much do we assume we know about UFOs. Richard, I'm not as familiar with your work as I am with the other two. And I know that you are a historian. You deal primarily with the story and history of UFOs. I know that you're big on the breakaway civilization concept. Um, what is your main focus in UFO research? Well, I'll answer that, but I want to follow up on Micah's point, okay. if I may. And uh, I, I agree with you. Um, pr- primarily, I agree with Micah, but I would uh, qualify it. We always have to qualify something. Yeah. Or else, why are we here? Um, I, I look at the UFO phenomenon. Think of um, think of like prying open a, a floorboard in your in an old house, and uh, when you pry open the UFO topic a bit, you see underneath this slimy, disgusting, <laughs> foul-smelling mess under the floor, and that's the United States government power structure. So, in other words, what I think is the, the more I dive into the UFO phenomenon, the more that I see that the political and social and power structure of our world, our nation and our world, is uh, involved in this in an, in an illegal and uh, I would say probably unethical way. And so that that is intimately bound into this phenomenon. You, I just can't look at the phenomenon by itself without right. looking at the political implications. And that'll answer your, your question, which is uh, my approach is I'm fascinated with every aspect of this topic from, uh, from all the crazy science that doesn't make sense, but actually does make sense to the social implications, to speculation about what we're dealing with. But primarily, it's the political aspects of this. In other words, this is a this is a thing that's real. We know it's real. We don't have to have hints that it's real. We have declassified government military documents that are in black and white. They're there. 
And they prove to us, not that this is necessarily extraterrestrial, but it proves to us that it's real, it's important, it involves violations of sensitive airspace by objects that are not supposed to exist, but they do. And so that, that's, that constitutes a problem. And it also constitutes evidence, very good evidence, of secrecy, cover-up, and lies. So to me, it's, I don't get offended by a lot, but I do get offended when I'm living in what is supposed to be a free, democratic, Republican yes, right. system of government, mm-hmm. and my government treats free. me like I'm five years old. Mm-hmm. That's offensive. And the UFO phenomenon on that basis is um, is the reason that I go at this because it's it's um, it's that floorboard. There's a lot of ways to pry open government secrecy, but this is a very very apt one. And when you pry that open, you see a lot of a lot of bad things underneath. Peter made the point in his presentation yesterday, and it is a very apt point that you have a um, correspondence between in the year 1947. And that is the year, of course, everybody knows Roswell, the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting, all the all those things that happened there. And I believe there was another one out in uh, Washington State that was also a very important sighting that happened around the same time. Well, that's the Kenneth Arnold sighting. Okay. But there was another one, I think, that was a— Maury Island. Oh, Maury Island. Yes. Thank you. So, so you have those three sightings that those There's three quite a few others. There's some very other very important ones, but yeah, go on. So you have the national security state comes into existence in 1947. That's, right. That's the beginning of uh, well, the National Security Council, the National Security Agency, the CIA. Uh, the, CIA. the NSA is a little bit later. Well, yeah. The 50s, yeah. right? The Council, 50s. though. Yeah. Yeah. So you and and the beginning also of the Department of Defense instead of the Department That's of right. War, right? Um, which we've had. Uh, more wars under the Department of Defense than the Department of War, but that's a whole other issue. Um, <clears throat> so you have this correspondence, and the main thing that I have been curious about in that respect has been in the have UFOs has they been have they been used by uh, military intelligence or other intelligence agencies in a way to kind of obscure secret programs? Great question. Um, I'd like to just yep, deal with please. that very briefly, yeah, okay. if I may. I, I would say um, maybe a little bit, but I would I would um, immediately jump in to say that that has been so overstated okay. uh, and so overused that it, it almost constitutes a fictitious argument. In other words, so twenty uh, about twenty years ago now, the C- official historian of the CIA. This is 1997. A man named Gerald K. Haynes wrote an article. It came out in Studies of Intelligence. It was, the declassified version was available for us. And he, he said, this is in the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event. Lots of hoopla associated with that. A lot of media attention. And at the same time, Haynes' article comes out, gets mm-hmm. massive mainstream coverage. And he's arguing, says, yes, you know, all those years, you know, when the CIA said we were not interested in UFOs. Well, that really wasn't kind of true. We actually were. And he said, the reason we were is to, um, we were flying the A-12 ox card and we were doing uh, the U-2 aircraft and all these secret flights that we didn't want the public to know about. They were mistaking them for UFOs. We were very happy to let them think that they were UFOs. That sounded really cool. The mainstream media picked up on it. And that became this, it was so widely uh, repeated that people just assumed, oh, yes, well, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly wrong. All right, that's exactly wrong. So when you really go through the data, you find, let's look at the UFO reports. That's supposed to be the U-2 or the, the A-12 or the SR-71. You find zero. I mean, there's really, the, the U-2 aircraft flies at 80,000 feet. It goes straight as a string. It doesn't descend. It doesn't hover. It doesn't do any of these. <laughs> so in other words, when you're really looking into the UFO reports, you're really not seeing 
the art, the uh, aircraft that Gerald K. Haynes was talking about. But but the, I'll just finish the, the. But the point was, I firmly believe that article came out specifically at a time to disable mm. the the real difficulties of the UFO phenomenon. And also, the best way to keep a secret is to pretend to share it. Sure. So what Haynes was really doing was pretending to give up, oh, some important secret. Oh, yeah, we're hiding our secret mm-hmm. uh, U-2 aircraft. Well, that's BS. <laughs> and that's really not what this was about. Let me add something really quickly, and then we'll go to maybe Peter on that, because I know with your research and what we talked about last night, there's a lot to be added. But uh, a, a quick observation, there, yeah. because I think with Kay, with the Haynes article, Rich, reading between the lines, what's even more interesting is early in the article, as you'll note, he states that, well, although the CIA had been involved, we weren't forthcoming with this publicly. We were working with our friends at Project Blue Book and the U.S. Air Force, but the reason that the CIA didn't want public knowledge of their involvement with UFO research had been quite simply, well, if the public knew that we were involved, it would encourage belief in the public, now, which, or amongst the public, in y- the phenomenon. Yes. See, now, here's yes. the thing, reading between the lines, when, he, when, when Haynes noted that, if the CIA's sole involvement had been in order to monitor the situation with regard to how people were responding and, and, and studying the UFO phenomena, the broader sense, although we figure that U2 and Oxcart are really what they're seeing, and hence we're only interested in what people think about what we're doing. To me, Patently I untrue. There was also, and then with April, if you remember Jim and Coral Lorenz, and they had said that they thought the CIA were the architects of Blue Book as far back as the 1960s. They had said that they thought they were being observed by the CIA, and right. evidence for that came out in the RAND uh, report. Now They, they were being monitored, I absolutely for sure. Yeah. What's funny is they weren't being paranoid. They were correct, and Haynes confirmed it. So two points. Yes, they were being monitored. It shows the extent to which over time the CIA have had direct involvement in civilian monitoring of UFO groups. And furthermore, that in my opinion, reading between the lines, they were not merely interested in what people thought of their own secret operations at the time. The CIA were directly interested in the broader possibility of a UFO phenomena exterior to any of Absolutely. our own technology, and which is what that is. Yeah, reading we'll, between the lines. We'll just add in, this is something that's not very widely known as it should be. In 1948, Harry Truman um, started getting UFO briefing summer of 1948. Uh, he had an Air Force liaison, a colonel who later became a general, Robert B. Landry. Uh, Landry was brought in and specifically as Truman's Air Force liaison on the topic of UFOs and other things, but certainly UFOs, in coordination with the CIA. And they gave Truman quarterly briefings from the summer of 1948 to the end of the Truman presidency. Do the math, at 16, maybe 18 briefings. Um, wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall of those? And what Landry said in an oral history interview in the early 70s, this is shortly, I think, after Truman had died, Landry said, well, you know, the president, like any citizen, was interested in these stories. I'm thinking, no, not really like any (laughs) citizen, Jack. There's a little bit more going on here. (laughs) And um, but what Landry then said is, yes, we did quarterly briefings on the flying saucer UFO thing for President Truman. He said nothing of great importance came up in those meetings. But of course, we didn't write anything down either. You know, the uh, former CIA director, Richard Helms, once said, the first rule in keeping secrets is nothing on paper. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so, there's, yeah. you know, who knows what these guys talked about. When you know, when you look at the UFO cases of that, of the Truman era, there's some amazingly, startlingly grave, frightening, um, unusual cases. There's no question Harry Truman was briefed on these.
What would be an example of one of those? You have uh, myriad airspace violations by objects that just were not supposed to exist. So like in the late 1949 into 1950, you have a phenomenon known as the uh, green fireballs in southwestern U.S. These were not fireballs by any stretch. These were objects that were flying low over Los Alamos, over specific areas of key U.S. nuclear technology. Uh, This received a great deal of high-level power scientist attention, intelligence community attention. We don't really know what their conclusions were. We do know that in uh, something known as Project Twinkle around that mm-hmm. time, there is one very successful triangulation attempt. They had uh, stations at three different locations. The Air Force did this. They tried to cover up their own findings, but they, on one occasion, they absolutely tracked an object flying at 100,000 feet altitude in 1951. You didn't have that. Going at multiple thousand miles per hour, we don't know the exact speed, with a diameter diameter of about 30 feet. That's right. So they nailed something. Mm. You know, this is, I don't know if Truman was briefed on this, but I bet some pretty good money he might (laughs) have been. That predated the U-2 and the Oxcart program. Absolutely. By several years, at least five or six, I believe. That's right. Five years, at least. The U-2 comes along, what, the 56, 57, starting to fly over Turkey. Um, and t- from from Turkey, excuse me, over the Soviet Union. Mm. That's what they were flying them out of there. Peter, what would be your v- viewpoint on some of this? Well, obviously, um, what Richard said has really nailed it. But what fascinates me about it is the schizophrenic nature of how the American public was conditioned to absolutely buy the nonsense. Uh it was intentional, it was deliberate, it was brilliant. And what I was talking to Mike about last night was um, a project I've been developing and given a few rudimentary talks on, on the origins of what I call the ridicule factor. In a otherwise sane world, and let's just say we grew up in a world without the UFO phenomena, just keep it a pure example right now, And I run into you on the street, Adam, we're old friends, and I say, you know, the damnedest thing happened yesterday afternoon. I was walking the dog or playing with the kids in the yards last night. I looked up and I saw this thing or things. They were unconventional shapes. They certainly weren't airplanes or helicopters or, you know, a balloon or something. Uh, One was as small as a star and zigzagged and changed color. The other was as big as three aircraft carriers. It stopped still, moved along. Another landed in the neighbor's yard, left a burn mark, took off. I wonder what it was. Now, in a non-counterintuitive society, you would either say to me or think, that is interesting, I wonder what it was too. How did it spontaneously happen that if I said something like that, you would watch my mouth move, but because of the media conditioning you had had and nothing to challenge it, you would think, what's wrong with Peter? Is he having a mental episode? Has he become a mystic? Does he want to fool me and embarrass me? Does he want to be famous? Um, None of it makes any sense on any level. It's so natural for people to be curious about things they don't understand. How did that happen? How could it have happened by accident? I don't think it could have. And so I commenced a very long study of of major media beginning before Roswell. And I focused in on the New York Times because of its uh, tremendous influence at the time, far and away. 
uh, and remembering out of a time before we were born that the the newspapers were people got their news. You know, you listen to the radio at night, but it was your newspapers, and everybody read them. It always seems rather tragic to me in a poignant way that my dad's saying, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 30s in New York, there were like 25 daily newspapers. And one by one, they either evaporated or combined. We have three major newspapers in New York right now. Wow. Um, in that big of a city, three major newspapers. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. terrible. Everything's obviously yeah. been consolidated. Right. right. I just want to, I want to add, yeah, I mean, ahead, the, uh, what we know, you know, relating to the newspaper coverage, um, this is not a matter of debate anymore. So we've got... Uh, a the, the you know the old CIA Robertson panel mm. of January 1953 makes yeah. it very very clear that they're going to work with the major media yeah. to uh, debunk the phenomenon of UFOs, keep it away people. from right, to keep the public <laughs> uninterested. But we also know at the same very period of time in the 50s and 60s we had something known as Operation Mockingbird, <laughs> which was CIA coordination with mainstream media. Uh, in, still in service. going on. Too. Of course, it's yeah. it's gotten. Are you kidding? It's like so vastly <laughs> so beyond it's, anything it's, from it's the worse 1950s. Now. It's yeah. much worse. Yeah. Yeah. But but what we know about Mockingbird and Carl Bernstein in the 70s uh, kind of broke the story for Rolling Stone magazine. 1977 said, you know, we had 400, probably much more, 400 American journalists who were on the CIA payroll. <laughs> you think about this. Mm-hmm. Just as Peter was saying, you read the newspaper with the expectation, oh, I'm in America, free society, free press, we're getting our news. No, you really weren't. You were getting spin in service of the national security apparatus, the national security state. And and in fact, some of those stories in Mockingbird were, a lot of it was editorial spin. Sometimes they were killing stories, but sometimes they were fake stories planted. So it was really a, a mind job done on the people. And the UFO phenomenon is just part, mm-hmm. I think, of the overall yeah. uh, manipulation that was going on during this period. An important part, because th- that topic... You think think about it. You know, back to 1947, this phenomenon dumped, just jumped in, drops in your lap. <laughs> are you going to tell the world about it? No, you are not going to tell the world about it. You don't even know what it is yourself. And what if you've recovered technology? What if you did? What if Roswell really happened? <laughs> I think it did. Uh, I think some other events happened as well. Are you going to share the technology with the Russians or with your enemies? <laughs> um, maybe not. And what if, what if the technology implies post-petroleum energy sources, mm. completely unraveling, overturning the whole apple cart of your energy paradigm and the whole financial power structure that is dependent on energy. Mm-hmm. All and, and, you know, when your controllers are named Rockefeller and um, Rothschild and Morgan and who knows what else, right? Yeah. You, you, you're not going to do that. So you're going to, you know, you're going to say, well, this, we're not going to talk about this. We'll work on this privately. That's the whole, where really the germination mm. of the idea of, my, my idea of a breakaway civilization came in, because you work on this stuff privately, you, you retain the energy breakthroughs and other breakthroughs from the rest of civilization. But the point is, the secrecy becomes paramount. Mm. And on top of that, you've got this whole existential issue. What are we dealing with? Who are these other beings? You really want to tell the, I've got relatives, I don't know about you, but some of my relatives would not be so good with this information. <laughs> and I love them, they're wonderful, uh, but yeah, not everyone's yeah. really good with... <laughs> So there's a lot of understandable reasons why you'd think some people would want the secrecy, but it, it takes on a life of its own, uh, like a like a monster, mm. and then it starts devouring the society that's hiding it. That's what we've had. The secrecy is at least as detrimental to us as this whatever whatever this phenomenon is. Everything. The fact that it is keeping us from our true destiny. Mm. I, I've often said that, and I've, and I've made this point to people that okay. 
The conspiracy theories you hear, they may or may not be true, but the fact that our government is not forthcoming about anything makes people more and more suspicious. Mm. So it's like a vicious cycle. It's like a feedback loop that just keeps on going. Well, we have very, very good reason to be uh, suspicious. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so their secrecy is not simply innocent secrecy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some That's people me would trying say this. To say, it's me trying to tell people that to, th- to just think about it instead of just naysaying everything. Yeah. yeah, but you know, on the other side of that, too, it's funny because we do a program on KGRIRadio.com, uh, which Richard and uh, Peter and I all participate. Is that a plug? It is, yes. Yeah, it's, it's called Encounters. <laughs> it's, Encounters is a unique program because it, it features a, a variety of different discussions about a variety of different topics, and often uh, the three of us or, or different pairings of groups of people who are involved, Chase Kletsky's involved, Race Hobbs, Jill Hansen, a number of others, and, and we'll, we'll Hobbs, come in together and we'll do a lot of different, <laughs> different things together. But um, um, it's funny because uh, race will often assign nicknames to us. He'll, he'll, he's referred to variously. Uh, Peter is the philosopher. Uh, Richard is the historian. And Micah is the skeptic. Although really to be a skeptic is to be a philosopher as well. I am very skeptical. But again, I also will note. and I'm, We all are. We, we all, we all have, have, to to be, be, have to be skeptical. I will make a distinction, yeah. however. Especially if you know beyond well, a reasonable doubt that you're dealing with Well, reality. exactly. And, and I want to play devil's advocate with my two colleagues here, here in a moment. Because that's the thing is to really truly be skeptical and be philosophical is not to be antagonistic, which seems to be so concomitant with modern big S skepticism. Mm. I think that mm-hmm. we can be skeptical, but we can also uh, work together and not contribute to this, what I call a social movement built around a skeptical atheist pairing that ideologically attacks everything and says if 99% of all UFOs can be explained, and perhaps they can, then 100% can be explained. I disagree completely. Where we all stand together without question, there is a phenomena, and there's something that I think in two factions, if not three, should be studied historically, as, as Peter does, or, or Peter and Richard, but then also the scientific side of that. And so the question that I play devil's advocate with and ask you gentlemen is in taking a, a shot, maybe not a shot, but a critical look at disclosure. Two concerns do arise. If, for instance, we know that there's information being withheld, what happens if the so-called truth embargo cannot be broken down through citizen action? Mm -hmm. The second question is, what if the information we're looking for is not what it appears to be, and we ask, but we don't get what we want? Either way, there could be shortfalls with disclosure. Could a case be made for more scientific individual investigation, your collection of soil samples, you know, investigative reports with witnesses? Should there be a strengthened approach scientifically as well as the disclosure movement? It has to be. I mean, the science that goes into the UFO subject is basically almost zero. Right, right, right. right. First of all, there's no money. That's problem number one. It's just very difficult to do that. And you can't really do science without money. So absolutely. And and organizations like MUFON, which really for 50 years have done little more than spun their wheels. Uh, and I'm not even, it's not the people in MUFON's fault. I mean, there's bad leadership in MUFON for a long time. All right, let's just say this very bad leadership in MUFON for a long time. This is why they don't invite me to the symposiums anymore. I haven't gone for, we have I was to be a critical. regular. We have to, we have to address and this. And I spoke out and, and it's been five years. I, you know, it's fine. It's, there's good people in the organization. Absolutely. Um, but the, the real problem is like, we need groups like MUFON because you really have to have uh, investigators who are able to look into these specific cases without without doing field work of specific UFO sightings, we've got nothing. Well, is the scientific right. community so, going to involve themselves in that well, kind of I thing? Mean, we haven't seen it, it very much. It would much. be nice to see. So that's right, the science. Yeah. In terms of the, what was the, you had another part uh, of the well, question, well, the, the first two, part. The, the two parts were, you know... I, I'm, oh, citizen action. Yes. So, look, we um, 
have for 50, 60, 70 years, we've had a, various citizen action attempts to end this UFO secret. It goes back to the 50s. All right. Um, and back in those days, people believed that they had a Republican democratic system of government. So it worked. You'd go to Congress. Theoretically, Congress is the voice of the people. You get congressional hearings. There's a great idea. And in 1950s, yeah, totally logical through the 60s. We, we don't have that. We don't have a functioning democratic. We have a, we have a kind of crypto proto global fascist totalitarian big brother system. <laughs> it's an oligarchy. I mean, let's just put it right out there. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't work as representative of the people. Everyone knows this. All right. And some people are still afraid to say it. So in that context, so if you're trying to get disclosure within a fascist state, how do you do that? It's going to be very difficult. So you do it through illegality. I mean, let's just so WikiLeaks, you WikiLeaks and, yeah. Anonymous, people like Edward Snowden, things that are technically illegal. You've got to you really have to break into the system. So you advocate the illegality. Yes, yeah, of course I do. Really? Absolutely. I'm, I'm advocating it. But um, um, because but, when you're in a system that is so unethical, mm-hmm. I have really have to say evil. It's really what it's become. You've got to find a way to deal with it. And uh, I'm not advocating violence, but I'm advocating Resistance. principled action. That's yeah. absolutely right. Well, but Rich, by the same token, could we, and Pete, I'd like your thoughts on this as well. Could the apparent hurdles that we face with, I think you're absolutely right about the power structure that sur- surrounds this, which to me is a, a strong case in my opinion, for not only questioning how effective disclosure and the movement will be. Here's a question. With all the momentum we see behind the Paradigm Research Group, you know, Ambassador, I mean, the one true UFO lobbyist, I may not agree with him on all points, but I really respect what he does, but shouldn't there be a scientific approach that tries to get as much grassroots uh, momentum behind that? Raising funds. Absolutely. This is a hugely multifarious topic, and it needs all of that. Yeah, and Pete, if you wouldn't mind... Rich, let him talk. <laughs> Sorry. Such a pain. God. Oh, look, a squirrel. Uh, the real challenge here is the conditioning that was inflicted on the American people was so successful that the ridicule factor that attaches to even being perceived as having an interest in the subject is amped up if you are a professional in any realm of the sciences. The catch-22 is any scientist worth the while who might be enrolled. I mean, if we were to put together a best evidence package, it would be a knockout. Historic, scientific, photographic, um, uh, paperwork, etc. But... No establishment scientific figure, with the rarest exceptions, is even going to consider reading a monograph on it. Why? Because they already know it's nonsense. They know it. Because mm-hmm. there's and a the culture there, there. Is yeah. it can't be, therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. I'm not going to demean myself or be associated with it. I'm a busy person. I'm sophisticated. If it were real, I'd know. My colleagues would know, etc. How do you break through that to begin to even enroll? members of um, the, the space science community, uh, people that work with NASA, um, the great astronomers around, mental health professionals, um, historians, but especially in the realm of science, I think about that a lot. And I honestly am not sure. Obviously, um, to paraphrase uh, an old catchphrase, um, uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. A scientist who is interested, genuinely interested in the way they'd be interested in their field they chose and they're passionate about in UFOs, 
if they had a sighting, if they had an experience, if somebody they loved and trusted with their life said, I, I don't even know how to begin, but I was taken and returned. Here's the marks. Here's the, uh, the burn mark and whatever. Um, their lives would change overnight. They jeopardized their career immediately. Um, that you saw is this part in of the practice challenge. with Larry Warren. Yeah. You saw the same thing happen to him. And how the irony there is we how denigrated he still nine is. years. We write the most distinguished, important yeah. book on the entire subject. It becomes a national bestseller. It's highly regarded by members of the British elite, by elected officials, by the populace. The book has its run. A few years later, everybody starts biting at his, his ankles again. I have to write two follow-up books. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to write a third, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but you know the attacks are going to keep coming. Um, it is human nature to have a pack mentality uh, relative to not wanting to be ridiculed or made fun of. Again, I don't know the key to bust through that, but, you know, a, a uh, you, you remember um, there was a really cheesy made-for-TV series in the 70s that was remade with more money and even worse about three or four years ago called V, as in Victory. Uh, it essentially was every World War II resistance movie we have ever seen with bad aliens as the Nazis and aware Earth people as the Freedom Fighters. Yeah. But it had one of the greatest premise science fiction beginnings worthy of Jules Verne or H.G. Wells. Everybody in the world wakes up one morning to learn that over the 50 biggest cities in the world, each one has a one mile across mothership hanging over it one mile up, game over. Mm -hmm. Game over. Obviously, that's quite an outrageous, you know, uh, premise. But if one quarter of a mile spaceship or whatever you want to call it, we woke up and found out it was hanging over Paris or Moscow or London or uh, Beograd or uh, Zagreb, uh, the world would change in a moment. For me, and talking about how it might break through, because we're not going to give it up, um, if... Somebody in a position of responsibility with a serious media venue, media venue looked at some of the truly authentic photographs of some of the stuff we have pictures of on the moon, high-resolution Hasselblad pictures that have not been touched and would present it in a serious way in the New York Times and BBC and CBS at the same time, that could rattle a lot of cages. Again, I, I'm just rattling on here, but I don't know the the... the Short answer to your long, good question is I don't know, but we have a real challenge there and we understand what we're up against. And, and that's an important point, too. I'll just very briefly add, uh, when we, we were talking, a few of the, the attendees here at the conference uh, earlier today, and I was kind of going over um, Nickel and Megaya, the skeptics, and their breakdown of the famous UFO Exeter incident, you know, incident at Exeter. Oh, you did a you did an analysis of their Oh, yes. And, and, and very briefly, I'll, because, again, I was talking about what I call meta-skepticism. I think yeah. that often what we find is as much speculation speculation in modern skeptical interpretations. And to be very quick yes. about this, in 2011, yes. Joe Nickel and James Magea uh, oh. came to the determination that the famous incident <laughs> at Exeter could be explained as yeah. being a KC-97 refueling tanker. Now, the problem is, is that on the second page of the first chapter of John Fuller's book, it mentions that Officer Bertrand, the first responding officer, had served in the Korean War in the U.S. Air Force on a KC-97, which I can interpret this to mean one of two things. They overlooked that, or they meant it, their explanation, in a way to demean the credibility of the witness, i.e. He, he should have known what he was seeing because he served on one. 
Mm-hmm. They described the thing being a football field distance away, hovering 100 feet over a field, wobbling back and forth, no sound whatsoever. And at one point, a B-47 flew overhead, and they said there was no comparison between the object we saw and the aircraft that were flying that night. Yes, there was a U.S. Air Force operation occurring that evening. Yes, it went a little later than the stated plan. But, you know, even the U.S. Air Force responding, the Secretary of the Air Force responding to that case and their personal inquiries into that had said, with the information you've supplied, we can't identify that aircraft. Now, why couldn't the Air Force identify it? Nicola Magea say that was strange, but in hindsight, everything becomes clear. <laughs> and as to the rest of the UFO sightings that were occurring that night and in the surrounding area for weeks to follow, those are outside the scope of our investigation. It yeah, was right. not Honestly, a good investigation. It was not a good well, explanation they offered, be, nothing other than propaganda. I had an encounter sure. with Magea shortly yeah. after that came out. Uh-huh. But yeah. uh, the only reason they were able to do it is because all the witnesses are dead. If they had put that argument out there in 1965-66, what do you think? Well, what does anyone course. think the response would have been? They would have been laughed at yeah. out of the courtroom. Yep. Same They'd thing has like, happened with Cash but and Landrum. It's fifty years, and they now they feel they can get away with it. Well, yeah, once kick the witnesses down, exactly. again, you know, here's the thing: Nicola McGann. I, I appreciate what they do. I may not agree, but really, I, no. Listen, I do, and here's why: I appreciate that they are attempting to come to a rational determination. But they're about, not. They're they, not. They aren't. They aren't. I don't. They're think purely politically motivated. I don't think that they're effectively doing it. Yeah, and I definitely disagree with it. I appreciate people who try to apply logic. I disagree with the logic they apply. Okay, so I'll give them that is what I'm saying. I, I, you, you may disagree, right. that's fine. Sometimes their logic I have is more no ridiculous. respect for them. It, I it's think they're pure, absolutely yeah. outrageous. Yeah. They're overt liars. They, they once again, they they either know it can it it can't be this. Therefore, it's something else. Uh, there is no room for them even to entertain the possibility. I think their conditioning is so deep because they know it's not real. Well, yeah, people and need that- to understand that the whole the history of that organization, these skeptics, they are explicitly pro-U.S. government, pro-national security state. I mean explicitly. Mm. Um, in the case of Nickel, I did a documentary with uh, Nickel was on it as well years ago on the MJ-12 controversy. Stanton Friedman was on it. I was on it. Nickel was on it. And he made a, Nickel made a statement toward the end of that where he said, you know, these UFO researchers are doing a grave disservice to the American people by promoting distrust in the U.S. government. And he really said that. Now, this is a line that Philip J. Class years before had mm-hmm. taken many times uh-huh. that these UFO researchers are serving the interests of the Russians, the Soviets. Class said this back during the 80s, many more than once. So, you know, let's, let's follow the thread here. These are not scientific arguments, all right? These people are doing explicit work on behalf of a government. It's political and arguments. It's political. I just wonder yeah. if they know at all right. times that And, and McGehee is the same thing, actually. Right. McGehee is former Air Force uh, intelligence. Is, yeah. and, and he worked on a KC-97 as well, I'll point out, but... So they've got very, very pro-military, pro-political. And, you know, you can support that. That's your choice. But I'm just saying that their political perspective is very, very obvious in the supposedly, allegedly scientific work they're doing, which it's not scientific. And let me be clear, by the way, I don't support that ideology. I support support interpretations and people's differences in belief. But now, let me also point this out. When the the foundation of PSYCOP occurred, you know, Marcelo Truzzi, who worked with Jerry Clark for years, co-authored books with him, they had wanted... Psychop, okay, a, the, the, the premier committee for the skeptical inquiry, scientific inquiry of uh, claims of the paranormal. Yeah, and yeah that's yeah, just CSI. Now it's yeah, just yeah. CSI. Yeah, same exactly. group. Oh, yeah. When they founded it, Truzzi had been a co-founder, and he had hoped again that. If the evidence on the table did not in all instances uh, lead to a factual conclusion, that we could leave open-ended conclusions, well, we don't know, and that this is 
as yet unexplained. He found that, especially with Philip Class and others who were involved directly with that organization, that their attitudes were such, as I said earlier, if 95 to 99% can be explained, then so can 100. <laughs> Truzy, co-founder of Psychop, left the organization because there was not openness to having a journal that would publish on unexplained and leaving things unexplained, which the reason right. I bring if this it all up... fit, we're not interested well, the, and, in hearing And the reason I bring it up is because what you said, I don't know. Yeah. At some point, true skepticism has to be willing to say, I don't know, rather than making up a speculative explanation. In that sense, they're not true skeptics. True. Bud Hopkins used to point out and occasionally rail on about it, and righteously so, how extraordinary the psychop people were. We were wrestling at the heart of a genuine mystery. They already knew. They know that there are no UFOs. They know that abductions are nonsense. We're in awe of them for their knowledge. And their knowledge is based on absolute arrogant ignorance and a refusal to even consider the real evidence. Therefore, they've kind of fireproofed themselves in this self-contained mantra of it can't be. Therefore, it isn't. Therefore, it's something else. And again, like you pointed out, if 99% can be explained, then 100 can. That premise is not only incorrect, it is the most outrageous insult. 99 are not being explained anyway, not conventional. How dare they? Well, the antithesis of true skepticism is presuming knowledge before one begins their investigation, which I find many modern skeptics do. And I'll just say this. I think what we end up finding, whether we're philosophers, you know, what we would call true skeptics, historians, we're all skeptical. Stanton Friedman and I having lunch in Riverside, California two months ago, he sat there, Micah, I'm a skeptic. You're a skeptic. But, you know, we're not debunkers, Micah. He says, he says, he's going to give it us. He says, he says, Mike, I'll tell you, we're both skeptics, but I, you know, I, I, a skeptic today says, don't bother me with the facts. My mind is all Absolutely. made up. And yeah. he always says that. But it's so true that yeah, you know yeah. there is a social movement that has been built around skepticism, which is why Marcelo Truzzi left Psychop. There are also skeptics who maintain skepticism who say, but you know, I can't explain that 1%. You're right, Rich. I think it's more than 1%. But I use that as a colloquial. No one really knows for sure. Right, I mean, exactly. you've got to, you know, it could be 20% unexplained to 10%. People say 5%. Some people say 3%. Some say, it really depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me, I want to ask you, Richard, a little bit of time here. I know that you have started looking into false flag terrorist events. Yes, yes, mm. I sure have. And uh, this is something that's always interested me from 9-11, Operation Gladio, maybe right. even the USS Maine in 1898 <laughs> at Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, what is your opinion, especially on something like 9-11? Well, I've uh, I believe that I was the first uh, widely known UFO researcher to start talking publicly about nine eleven. Other than Jim Mars, who's a little bit more than a UFO yeah, researcher, yeah, yeah. but among I, I think I might have been the first. I, I got stopped at airports for two years, uh, not stopped, delayed uh, solidly for two years. I think because of my nine eleven statements. That was yeah. back in oh four oh five. Something about nine so, eleven. I have a I have a friend, well, good well, good friend of the show that. Um, he went to the 9-11 Truth Conference that Alex Jones put on in 2006. Well, oh, after okay. that, he got put on the no-fly list. Yeah, had absolutely. Had to get yeah, off yeah. of it. And this is someone that had worked for the United States Army as a, uh, a scientific consultant. Yeah. It just your, blows your, my your mind. Your prior service becomes yeah. irrelevant. Right. So the, the thing about 9-11, I would say clearly it's just, it'll be you know, the centerpiece of the, the book that I'm working on, but certainly not the only piece. 9-11 is the, it's the foundation for the 
kind of system that we now have in the United States, this neo-fascist system, it's really what it is uh, in all but name. Uh, the the uh, justification for the homeland security state, the surveillance state, and all of that, and it's also the justification for the uh, the wars of absolute total destruction that the mm. U.S. has levied on uh, a number of countries now. Basically, it is to uh, privatize their oil. Uh, take them and also to disable any threats to the U.S. petrodollar system. So that's 9-11 is a perfect justification. But what I what I would say is that we live um, kind of in an era now of false flags. False flags have evolved over the years. Some people say it's an ancient phenomenon. I, in the beginning of my research, I was inclined to accept that. I don't anymore. Mm-hmm. I think false flags are distinctively modern phenomenon. Uh, you know, they say, well, Nero burning Rome and blaming the Christians. I actually don't think that that was exactly how it went down. The evidence isn't that strong. I think where we start seeing real false flags, you mentioned the main, but I'm, I'm on the fence about that. I really did look into that. But I think after the first world war, when you have a militarized world, all right. Uh, and with intelligence agencies and clandestine operations that are now beginning to become sophisticated. Uh, and also where you have governments that have in certain parts of the world, major control over their propaganda system, the media. So back in those days, in the 1930s, you got Germany, Japan, Soviet Union did some of the early really good false flags of the 20th century. Uh, After World War II, we see the United States winning the gold medal of the false flag Olympics. It's not even close. No one else is even in the the league, other than U.S. vassal states like Britain and Israel, uh, which are also involved in them. And there's other, other nations as well. Absolutely. Um, But with the, the reason for false flags, I think is more important than, you know, asking is this or that a false, because sometimes it's hard to say there's cases of what I would call shock doctrine type opportunism. So Naomi Klein wrote a very good book called the shock doctrine in which she argues. And I think she's absolutely right that there are, um, you know, that the U S you know, we have here about the shock and awe, strategy of the U.S. military. We're going to shock you. We're going to awe you. Like, yeah. Oh my God, this is our strategy. It is, but it, she argued it's also their strategy of ruling at home. So they rule by trauma. Like she referenced to Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, which she didn't look at as a false flag, but she said these are horrible events in which people are traumatized. And at that moment, when they're looking for protection, the state or corporations roll out their plan. In case of Katrina, it's corporate takeover of the city of New Orleans. 9-11, it's a national security apparatus. So these, she argues that these plans are in place. And I think, I think that is, there's truth to that. There are cases of opportunism, of things just happening, and then agencies using that for their own advantage. But I would say there are also cases in which they'll go a step further and make it happen. And that's a true false flag. And I think the reason for that is twofold, where A, it's what we would call globalization or neoliberalism, in which you've got, really since the end of the Cold War, a situation where it's a transnational corporate takeover, banking takeover of the world, end of nations, all of that's happening. What that means is you have to disembowel the middle class of the United States. It's necessary. And in that situation, look at the 1999 Seattle riots and protests. That's when people believe they had rights. They shut that city down for four days. All right. 40, 40 plus thousand people. And they stopped the WTO from primarily getting any work done. Um, I guarantee you, guaranteed that those people at the top said this is not happening anymore. 18 months later, 9-11 comes, the hammer comes down and boom, everything's transformed. So to pr- in other words, to create a national security surveillance apparatus to uh, 
make people understand that this globalization is happening and you don't have any way to stop it. That's one. And the other reason for these false flags is U.S. dominated reason that the U.S. is is a dying empire and is hanging on by its fingernails to hold on to its petroleum, a petrodollar based global system of control. And so that when other nations um, threaten that, whether it's Saddam Hussein, you invent the fictitious weapons of mass destruction, charade. Libya is another one. Uh, What's going on in Syria now is the exact same, cut from the same cloth. So in other words, it forces the U.S. to lie because the U.S. just can't say to the world, oh yeah, well we're going to steal all the can I say shit? You can. We're going to steal all the shit in the world, <laughs> and you can't, you know, no one's going to like that. So they have to, um, they have to lie. They have to pretend that they're doing something that they're not. So it, it causes all of this rule by deception. You know, Kim Jong-un of North Korea doesn't need to do false flags, because he just scares the hell out of the people. Yeah. They'll, like, do what he says. In the, it's, it's the in U.S. Face, where man. you've got a yeah. pretense of democratic rule, where people believe they have rights, and in our in our country, we still have them, all right. So there there's still fear of us, and that prompts the need for these false flags. And we really need to remember this. You know, there wouldn't be an era of false flags if we were if if the thumb were completely on top of us. We have we have enough freedom and power still that we they feel we need to be corralled by this ultimate tool of propaganda, which is the false flag. Peter, you as a native of New York City resident, were you there that day when that when that happened? I was. Did, what did you feel? Um, did you feel like there was anything that was weird or odd or just kind of strange about the? I events? wrote a piece on it that afternoon between about twelve really? and one in the afternoon. I was at my desk early, about eight forty-five. <clears throat> Somebody came to the edge of uh, my workstation and said, a "Plane just hit the uh, trade center." I thought nothing other than some idiot in a six-seater Cessna, you know, went off course. Right. And I remembered the the strike uh, um, in in the 40s after the war where uh, a military plane plowed into uh, like the 70-odd floor of the Empire State Building. It was a Sunday. Thank goodness it cut a cable. Seven people were killed. And I was reflecting on it for a while until what was it an hour or so later? When I heard somebody scream down the hall, a second plane hit the second tower. Uh, Not only is New York City my home, and I was born there, and not only did I watch and photograph the World Trade Center being built, I'm old enough to remember that neighborhood of 16-odd acres before it was rezoned, which since the 1920s had been called Radio Row. It's where you went to do your comparative shopping for a Fisher preamplifier or a new hi-fi. And um, I, I remember that sort of sense of longing of New York's changing again, et cetera. Well, by noon, uh, it was an office of 45 people. Um, we had one rabbit ear television in there, even though we were a media concern. And John, our boss, pulled us all into the same room and he said, um, New York City's under attack. Um, I don't want anybody in this office leaving here without knowing that you are covered, especially our friends in Brooklyn, Queens, and Jersey. Uh, everybody in the neighborhood, do you have a place for to put somebody up? And all of us stepped forward who did. Uh, everybody else, do you have a way to get off the island uh, covering each other? 
Uh, And then, because we were right across the street from the uh, world headquarters of Newsweek, and they were very concerned, and they sent their staff home. And I'm sitting at my desk. I'm running a news service. Um, At this point, um, we've had UFOcity.com, a a five-day-a-week UFO news service that was corporately sponsored. I had an absolutely free hand. And I sat there, and I thought as a New Yorker, as a writer, as an American— Seeing these grainy pictures, you know, kind of doubled up um, of what's going on a few miles north of me, I took it very personally. I had friends who worked in the building. I had friends who had just been transferred to be working in the building. Mm. I had been in and out of those buildings dozens and dozens of times of a New York City tour guide. I had a wistful memory of one of the times I was up on the roof with a group of tourists, and the wind was so bad it took somebody's hat off, and we watched it disappear, and, and I just went on automatic and I wrote, I I think one of the most moving pieces I've ever written, you know, my home, this city, this great city, America's under attack. We don't know who it is. I also, I knew, you know, you're a tour guide, you walk around with stats in your head. On an average workday, a quarter of a million people might be in and out of those two buildings, the size of Hartford, Connecticut. I thought, good God, we could have 40,000 deaths here. Yeah, I remember I mean, hearing they that. They hit that earlier day, yeah. than they could have to do the maximum damage. I, I thought my father was one of them. My dad oh, worked at the World Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, he was a retired New York City yeah. cop who had a job as fire safety director uh, for seven years. He hired after the 93 bombing as a fire safety director, and um, I didn't know his schedule. It turns out he had yeah. Tuesdays off. Shared his job with a very nice man that I did know who, who was killed that oh. day. Well, but the out. phones were out, and you couldn't tell what was happening. And I walked to where I was living. I was working on West 57th Street, and I, I was living on West 88th Street. I walked up Central Park West, like every other New Yorker, in total shock. I went into my apartment. I closed the door. I, I turned on. I didn't have a television. I listened on the radio. You have to understand... It was the most beautiful day imaginable. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. The temperature was perfect. The sun was out. You know, I'm already getting hints of of, uh, the wind was um, uh, due east. So all of the soot and the fire was settling on Brooklyn. All I wanted to do is get the hell down there. I wanted to be there. I had a job. I couldn't. But by 6 o'clock that night, I'm saying... I'm damned if I'm going to feel like a prisoner in my apartment. And I walked from 88th Street. I never saw New York like it before since the streets were almost empty. Starting to see military vehicles. There was a line. Bud Hopkins had walked over to the West Side Highway. And there was a line of emergency vehicles and ambulances as long as you could see. Now, of course, just this most poignant image. There was nobody to help. There was nobody to help. And I walked down to Times Square. It was empty. Took my camera, photographed it. Uh, every display was about what in the name of God is happening here. I am still personally angry about it. But uh, one thing that it resulted in was a tremendous delay to even look into any of the darker scenarios. It was rough enough for me to just deal with the facts yeah. as I understood them. And to this moment, I'm still way behind a lot of you guys and looking at the alternate you know, a lot of it may be very valid, outrageous as it might sound to, you know, some straight shooter. Uh, I'm still trying to deal with it on a certain level. I think for me, the conclusion that I finally came up with after studying it for so long was just that at the very least, 
they knew something was going to happen and it was allowed to happen. That's my the very least. Very least. Absolutely. You know, there's still never been a good explanation as to why NORAD was asleep at the wheel. I mean, NORAD and the whole FAA, none of these. If you're flying from Boston to Los Angeles, all right, and if if you're like this tiny little bit off course, like five degrees or less, NORAD's going to know... And they are imme- they've, they've had a system in place for, for 40 years before yeah. 9-11. Yeah. All right, so if you're a tiny little bit off, they detect that. They're on, in touch with the FAA, and the FAA radios you in the cockpit, and they say, hey, is everything okay? And if you don't give a proper answer, they scramble jets. This mm-hmm. procedure had been in place for generations, and that, that system failed four there times. There was the day. golfer that died in the plane. Payne Stewart. Yeah, the... the uh, it was about a year or so before, That's correct? Right. And they scrambled two jets That's for right. this little bitty plane. Well, what's a little known fact is that Rumsfeld overturned that whole policy in yeah. June of 2001. And then after the whole screw up of 9 11, he's like, oh, yeah, we'll just put it back in place. But I mean, so this really, you have to ask yourself, what, what's that all about? Mm. And that's just the beginning, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you really could, you could go on and on. In any rational society, like if 9 11 had happened in China or Russia, and they had had the reaction. I think maybe we would have enough detachment to, to look from here and think, you know, your your official story doesn't quite match what appears to be the case. But it happened here. Everyone old enough remembers all discourse was shut down. Because and I mean, absolutely just shut because down. Because that can't happen in America. That's right. Just like JFK. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the destruction of the, of the towers itself. Look, it's a simple thing. All right. This is just restating the obvious, but never before nor since in the history of steel frame construction have you had free fall, collapse, disintegration. Forget collapse. These buildings disintegrated in a big pile of dust. From what? Air? From fire? Never happened before. Hasn't happened ever since. I have to jump in for a moment. Uh, The structural idea, and it was a money saver, for the Trade Center was to take the tried and true principle that the skyscraper was built on beginning in the 1890s. You're working on Manhattan Island. Essentially, it's granite, although downtown it's not. It was built on a sand base, the the Trade Center. Interlocking steel grids. You can't go wrong. What they did was create a structure where all the load-bearing was on the exterior walls. And I think structurally, of course... For a lot of us who are, you know, clung to the idea that maybe it was some conventional terrible tragedy and that because there was nothing like it. I, I, I remember people getting in touch with me thinking I had been killed because they were visualizing the thing falling like a tree yeah. rather than pancaking, yeah. which was another right. story as well. Well, the, the pan, uh, um, I, I will just point out that there are thousands of qualified architects and engineers who would take issue with that theory. The pancake theory is something else people are not aware of. Actually, it was put forth on September 14th, 2001, in a paper. I cannot remember this man's name. He was an engineer. Uh, and he actually published this. I have the PDF. Three days after 9-11, he publishes a paper which... Uh, supposedly explains why those twin towers fell. And I'm like, are you for real, man? Uh, how how are you going to do the math on this? And why, by the way, would you feel it's necessary to publish such a thing to justify why these these towers fell? That was the pancake theory, and it is, I mean, easily was disproven even by the official establishment. But like, this is very suspicious. How who's good enough to do the work? And, and publish this in three days? <laughs> I'm, I have the PDF. I've, I'm not an engineer, but I'm not a dummy, and I can read bullshit when I see it. And the math is just not there. 
he basically invents these hypotheticals right out of thin mm-hmm. air. That's just one problem. Then the other thing about 9-11, let's not forget the anthrax scare. All right. Everyone forgets yeah. this. Anthrax was the two and the one-two punch that gave us the Homeland Security state. And the anthrax scare we know was, was a lie. You know why? All those lo- the letters that came out with the anthrax. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. Okay. So that's clearly pegging yeah. the Islamic terrorists. And then the day after the USA Patriot Act was passed, on October 24, 2001, then the mainstream media says, literally one day later, oh... The anthrax appears to have been highly weaponized and come from a U.S. Uh, military right. laboratory. Military you say grade. what? So, yeah. so um, who's writing the letters? Yeah. A simple question. All right, this is not Al Qaeda, although Rumsfeld letters, and Bush and Condoleezza Rice were harping on alternately with Saddam Hussein. That was one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Osama bin Laden and Islamic terrorists were all trotted out during that month. And it was the anthrax scare, not 9-11, by the way, that was front row center of the news media during the passage of the Patriot Act. And anthrax was necessary because if it had just been 9-11, people might have thought, oh, it's just a one-off. The terrorists. But now with anthrax, it's first 9-11. Oh, wow. Now anthrax. They're coming at us with that. What next? And so people were completely psyched out. Anthrax was critically important. It's always forgotten. And when you look at the details of the anthrax attack, it really makes us look a little more critically, I think, at the events of 9-11 as well. But there's so many problems with 9-11 just even without the anthrax that it's it falls apart may i interject one thing before pete i know you you had a point but uh, i'll also say this you know if we want to look at documented proof and information that can be you know they can apply a bit of uh precedent for the you know the claims of for instance the number of engineers who have said that well we disagree with the the pancake theory as rich was discussing there was and i do recall a document that was released as a result of a journalistic inquiry into that uh the document was actually issued by the national institute for standards of technology which referred to it as anomalous freefall the collapse okay anomalous anomalous freefall right that was the nist that wasn't a group of independent engineers so on that day so i will say and and you take that to mean whatever you will but uh, i think in the scope of this conversation that is precedent supplied by a governmental agency uh, you know an investigative committee which is not a fringe or an independent inquiry into the you know the cause behind 9-11 there are obviously still questions and i'm still asking about the 7200 word redacted portion of the congressional inquiry which now the cia director is saying may contain misleading information in which our current standing yeah he said command- we shouldn't be allowed to and, see it and our current commanding uh, uh, commander-in-chief has said that he is familiar with it a nice way of saying he hasn't read it which is very yeah, unique to me that you know there's there, there could be such an attitude among government that our current commander-in-chief barack obama would say I'm, i have not read the redacted portion of the this 9/11. is the behavior of mafioso criminals well, it's very all right but except that they're in it's anomalous it's power. anomalous behavior rich yeah yeah, <laughs> maybe to put it nicely. <laughs> Peter, what was the point you were going to make? Uh, personal point on the anthrax scare. Uh, how, how much time? Uh, we're talking about a very short. I'm trying to remember the time frame after 9/11. Itself. It was at uh, least a week. It, it was. It was, like it was a week and a half. Or? It was. It was a less than two weeks when it happened, but it didn't get a lot of publicity until really the end of September, very okay, early October. What I'm remembering is within a week and a half or so. We're working in our office. Uh, the building had been closed, but we went back to work on Tuesday. Um, the first day I could get off was Saturday. I set my alarm for 5 o'clock. My Nikon was loaded. I made my way downtown as far as I could. At the time, the coordinates started 14th Street. By that day, it was down to Canal Street. Regular military um, uh, 
police forces, um, uh, National Guard. And I just became a little irrational, and I started to just keep ducking into side streets. I wanted to get there. And I kept getting caught by military who politely escorted me back to the line, and I found my way into the next alley, got very close to the trade centers uh, before they, you know, excluded me, found a view uh, looking straight down Gunsight Street to um, uh, the rubble pile looking straight down Greenwich Street. And I have photos of the water on the rubble pile continuing down the street. And uh, Anyway, working at the office a week or so later, third floor of a building between Broadway and 8th Avenue, south side of the street, West 57th Street, directly across the street from the world headquarters of Newsweek. I hear some commotion in the neighboring office where all the windows face West 57th Street, and I go in there, and more and more of our employees are just pressed against the windows. And now one vehicle after another after another is pulling up, parking diagonally right in front of the lobby for International Newsweek building. Hazmat people are getting out in white suits with tanks on their back, carrying bags, walking into the lobby. We went dead quiet. Of course, they had had an anthrax scare. And our first thought was not only were we a multimedia company, but the name of the company included the word media. And we're right across the street. Um, It was a very chilling personal moment. Uh, I know something that made me educate myself even more about this hideous disease, anthrax, and the weaponized ideas around it for me personally. That frightened me. That frightened me. And anybody that any of our people spoke to who had that secondhand experience, of course, you know, you think of cities as having big macho personalities, New York City, Chicago as much as any, but Manhattan Island is a unique case. And one of the things we all learned very quickly was even though we're in, you know, the greatest city in the world, the greatest part of it, um, there's food on the shelves, there's water coming through the faucets. At any given time, you have to remember that Manhattan is fed by this spider web of bridges and tunnels. There is three days' worth of food on Manhattan Island. Two water mains feeding the whole city, both of them created before the Civil War. One that's going to come online in a few years, blow one of them. Very vulnerable feeling. I want, I want to mention that uh, regarding anthrax, um, on the evening of September 11th, 2001, this is from an, an Associated Press report from a little later. Dick Cheney's mm. staff, or the White House staff, including Dick Cheney's staff, begin to take the anthrax antibiotic drug known as Cipro. Right. Oh, boy, All right. Night. That's the night God, of September damn. 11th. Yeah. They start taking this drug. Uh, I rest my case. What else? What else can I say? I can think of a lot of other drugs. Right. I'd rather I was going take. through. Well, Peter, I have a, I have a, I have a detailed chronology of all of the research I do on this, and I was hunting through, and I just found my uh, my source on it. So, um, yeah, they start taking Cipro, which, by the way, I mean, uh, I there's more to the Cipro connection, and I, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but this is. Is all just really sneaky, slimy, evil yeah. business. One, one thing that I is wanted interesting. To, one thing yeah, I wanted to point out is that, from what I've looked at, you don't really need the bombs in the building, thermite, whatever. Uh, the buildings could have fallen completely from the way that they said. But if you look at the intelligence connections, that's just well, as dirty. 
and just and, and, and just as weird. The, the night this is what you're, you're indicating here. I mean, the nine eleven arguments, dude. It's not like um, like a chain where if one weak link is weak, the whole thing breaks. No, it's actually yeah. a cumulative effect. So there's so many arguments. Yes. If, if one actually turns out to be a red herring, it almost doesn't matter. It's like um, you know you're being shot at from all of these different directions, and maybe some of the bullets will miss. Um, the one I love but, is the passports. Yeah, that's, that's that's the clincher for me. Well, that's equivalent to the Lee Harvey Oswald magic yeah. bullet. Yeah. But relating to the uh, the destruction <laughs> of the towels, I I do I read the Copenhagen study that talks about uh, highly energetic thermitic material thermite. Mm. Uh, I've I don't think that I haven't found that really debunked. I think uh, the most you can say about it is that you really can't prove the providence of those samples, which is true. Yeah. On the other hand, I would say a rational mind um, would be more likely than not to conclude that this is probably legitimately obtained in the aftermath of 9-11, seems to me. Um, having said that, all that you have to ask, you know, when Peter is talking about the, the, the particular structure of the World Trade Center, that's true, but it's also true that there were vertical steel columns there anyway. True. They just they just disappeared. When you look at the collapse of the, the, the disintegration of the tower, where the hell did these steel columns go? Yeah. All right, this is a lot and of why steel. Did we get rid of that and steel it's just, so quickly and send it to China. It's, a, yeah. it's a, been a big rise and a big pile of dust. Out of it. You know, I mean, yeah. this is just, I mean, as Jesse Ventura, I think he said in one of his, uh, if you took a brick at the level of the roof of the World Trans, dropped the brick at the moment of, of fall, they're going to, the roof and the brick are going to hit the ground at virtually the same moment. Where's all the resistance? Where are all these, you got 110 floors here. And they offer zero resistance, really, to the speed of collapse. And not just twice, the North and South Tower, which were hit by planes, but there's Building 7. Yeah. 47 stories tall. That would have been the largest building in 33 states of the United States. Yep. It's big. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, one other thing, too, in this city that we're sitting in right now, Minneapolis, Minnesota, sometime in 2001, there were FBI agents that were investigating these guys that were learning how to fly but not how to land, <laughs> they were suspicious about it. They called their superiors, and basically the superior said, don't worry about it. We've got somebody else on it. You're not to have anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you know, since this goes in line, the FBI, is like if the FBI were ever to approach you for to, like, work for them, your best answer is, like, run. <laughs> Like it's like if Agent Smith in the Matrix is coming after you, just run. Especially if your skin color is like a shade or two darker than mine, because as they, they love going after guys who look like foreign nationals. Yeah, and then they screw them over, they set them up, and they end up in prison for the rest of their life. Um, this is a after, since nine eleven. There have been I think like one hundred and fifty some prosecuted federal terrorism cases, something like that. And of that, I try to read about half of them, literally half or possibly more. I wish I could remember exactly uh, are directly implicated to FBI agent provocateurs being set up. People who are really not always that bright, very easy targets. Uh, Let's say, you know, they identify you as maybe, you know, you seem a little anti-American. So I, I, I would be the agent. I would cultivate you, and I would encourage your belief, and I would say, yeah, we should do something about it. And you'd be like, yeah. And I would say, hey, I, we can, uh, I can get you some C4. Mm-hmm. 
and I and I bring I, I take you shopping or I bring you the fake C4. I drive you to the place that you're supposed to blow up, and then we arrest you and you spend the rest of your life in a dark cell. Richard, I think that's what happened with the Boston bombing. Yes, I, I, I firmly I think, believe that. I think that uh, that was that was supposed to be the setup. The FBI was going to sweep in at the last minute, arrest these guys, and look yeah. like big heroes. Dozokar, Sarniev, but that, and uh, the his older brother. the older brother figured it out. Switch, switch something at the probably the last minute and was able to... And the reason so Boston, I think, had to happen uh, from their point of view, Boston was the rollout of the real militarized police in this country. So in the aftermath of the Boston uh, bombing, by that Friday, by the end of that week, you have 19,000 militarized police breaking into the homes of citizens of the United States... And, and, you know, the people of Boston, they had this, the, the slogan, they all, have all these slogans that roll out with a lot of these false flags, like they come right out of Madison Avenue. In this case, Boston Strong. Mm. And I'm like, really, Boston? I love Boston, but I got, I got to tell you, Boston, you were not strong that day. The people of Boston rolled over for this. Cowering in their homes. Well, you know, people of most of this country would probably have done the same. So I don't want to single them out. But this is the home of the American Revolution, man. And they, and they just rolled for the most part. I have a very good friend, a woman, who said, screw this, and she rode her bicycle through the deserted streets of Boston that day. Good for her. But that's an exception. Um, but to it roll out the militarized police, I think this was an important thing that they felt had to be done. And now we've had, you know, we have Ferguson, we have militarized police everywhere now. No more man in blue. It's there in black, just like the SS. They wear black clothing, like the stormtroopers on Star Wars or the SS. And, and now we're all being, you know, made to be used to that, yep. that kind of fascist nonsense. Absolutely agreed. Well, gentlemen, thank you. It's been great. I think we went over the 30 minute by like 30 more minutes. Did we? But, uh, <laughs> Did we? <laughs> real quick, gentlemen, uh, give uh, your websites where people can contact you. Micah, you do the same. Oh, sure. Yeah. Everybody knows you. Well, yes, yes. At least in this audience. And, and I'll also just very briefly say it's, it's always such a pleasure to be able to speak with the two of you and other fine folks here. Travis Walton yeah. standing right behind Peter there. Um, very seldom do we get to come together, share ideas, yeah. look one another in the eye and say, you know, in, in terms of common goals, let's discuss. Let's not always agree. Let's let's or agree. Rather. Right. Let's let's get to the bottom. Let's have let's, a conversation yeah, and figure a few things let's out. Let's talk. And so this and, is a, um, Adam. Thanks to you guys for bringing us together here. Yeah, so it is a pleasure. I know we've got Richard Dolan uh, Press. I have, yeah, richarddolanpress.com. I publish books by myself and some other really cool authors. You can go check it out there. Yes. PeterRobbinsNY.com. Yeah, MicahHanks.com. Your website run by the uh, great Soraya Askath. We'll give it a shout out indeed. to him. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you guys so much. My um, pleasure. We're going to go to another interview. We'll be right back. All right, it's back. We got some sleep after a long night here at the uh, partying it up here at the uh, Templar Lodge in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. And uh, to get right to it, we got another pair of guests here, and we're going to have a third one joining us in a bit. But I have Jennifer Stein, the director, producer of the DVD Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton. And I also very privileged to have with us Travis Walton himself. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. 
I'm glad that you guys could sit down and talk with us. We're going we're gonna to talk about this film. Um, I have not had the pleasure of viewing it yet, but I will very, very soon. Probably as soon as we get back, from, get unpacked from Nashville, we will. We, I will definitely sit down and watch it because it's one I'm, I'm really excited about. I, of course, have seen the movie Fire in the Sky. I've probably seen it two or three times. Um, it's one of my f- kind of favorite movies from of UFO-themed movies from the 90s. Um, but after kind of knowing the actual, Travis's actual case, I don't like it as much because I feel like they really Hollywoodized it, at least like that the part where he's actually in the craft that part was seemed to be like all made up. The rest of the movie is good, um, but that was just kind of like you know, Hollywood does what it does and just makes things over the top and kind of ridiculous in my opinion. And I did love the uh, Paranormal Witness uh, that Sci-Fi Channel put out. That was extremely excellent, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing a docu- more of a documentary style than a kind of like docudrama like the Paranormal Witness was. So, Jennifer, what I want to kind of start out with you and ask you about how you got into this story and how you met Travis and kind of like the process of making this film. Well, thank you, Adam. It's always a long journey, especially when you start out uh, making a complex film uh, like this was as a documentary. Uh, Basically, it started with my dear friend Peter Robbins, who invited me to be part of a uh, the Roswell Conference in 2010. Peter was uh, hired by the mayors to help organize that, and I had a lot of conference organization experience. I was a f- my former career as event coordinator uh, in Philadelphia, and um, I just got tired of doing events, weddings, bar and bat mitzvahs, conferences, <laughs> and things like that. Right. I needed to have more meeting connected with what I was doing. I was looking for a way to inspire my life a little more. And I decided I was just going to take on film projects, which I could control a little more myself and try to do really important and meaningful projects. So I'd done some film work with Richard Dolan, Stanton Friedman, and Peter Robbins in that previous couple of years. And uh, Peter said, Jen, come on out, help me run the uh, Roswell Conference. So while we were there, we had dinner with uh, Travis one night. And over a glass of wine and a couple of beers, we were saying, Travis, how come you haven't ever done a conference around your story? Because your story is as big and important and significant as the Roswell story. And it would be great to bring people into northern Arizona around the towns where this event took place, either Heber, Snowflake, Holbrook, something like that, and do a couple day conference and bring in speakers. I mean, is that something you'd be interested in doing? And Travis said, yeah, I'm I'm game. I just need a a group of dedicated and willing volunteer people to help me. So that's kind of what got me started. That's when I first met Travis. I bought his book there. I read it. Of course, I'd known the Paramount story version. Travis explained how he was very disappointed that the film uh, Fire in the Sky kind of subverted the story and changed the story, even combined some of the characters And um, I actually didn't even start out trying to make this film. I started out trying to help Travis do a conference. And part of the uh, conference strategic plan that was a goal of Travis's was to take people back to the forest, to the actual site that this event took place. And as an event coordinator, I'm thinking, how do we take people into the woods at night where it's a 
half hour, you know, hike and it's dangerous and there are wolves and bears and coyotes and there's no <laughs> real clear path to get there. I'm just thinking, oh, this is problematic. Uh, of course, in November, it could snow, it could rain, there could be difficulty with four-wheel vehicles trying to get people there. And if you sell a lot of tickets, then, and you have to cancel, like, we need to have a plan B. So I started out doing a film project for Travis for the conference. And this was a plan B film if we needed it, if we'd sold a lot of tickets to take people into the forest and we couldn't take them there because of snow or rain, we would be able to show them a film, which would be some of the original guys in the crew walking through the forest with Travis, reminiscing, showing the place that it happened, if possible, showing it from the air, mapping it out. So it would kind of be like a little more than a PowerPoint presentation, but it would be an actual revisitation to the space on film. And we could do it from the comfort of a nice hotel room or, you know, a a little theater, depending on what we needed to do at the conference. And this was my long-range plan. I got that done in 2013, and that's called Tracking Skyfire. And Travis has that available for sale on his website. Now, a, fe- a gentleman I work with in Philadelphia named Bob Terrio, we do a lot of film projects together. We also do some work for MUFON. Um, he and I underwrote that project and started it, and Bob actually edited that together. And it came out to a very nice uh, hour and a half focused documentary. And in 2013, I was planning for the 2014 MUFON Symposium in Philadelphia. I was bringing in and selecting speakers to bring into Philadelphia. And I decided that, gee, you know, maybe I could sit down and interview a lot of these speakers and then do some more in-depth research, maybe fly back out to Arizona, get a few key interviews with some of the police, some of the polygraph experts. You know, I found out they were still alive, where they lived. I, you know, I tracked down Cy Gilson. And I started making inroads and contacts and planning to just take this first film and then just punch it up. That's the way I kind of broke it up in my mind in stages. If I probably started to take on the project of making the film, I wouldn't have known where to begin. I had done smaller projects up to this point, but I hadn't really done a 90-minute focused documentary. I had done 40-minute, 20-minute focus pieces for charities and different organizations and other UFO authors and things like that. I'd done some work for Zachariah Sitchin, but this was a bigger project. So I kind of broke it apart in stages, and that's really kind of how it happened. After I got these interviews at the MUFON conference, I realized I had the real key things I needed. Then I did a little more research, document archives and things like that, researched Philip Class's you know, work that he was involved in, uh-huh. and I really knew I had a key, um, you know, key pieces I need to put the story together. What was, uh, what was class's explanation of Travis's experience? I, I think I forgot. Well, he he used them all. Memorable. Yeah. yeah. He, he pulled things out of the hat when he needed yeah. to. Uh, he, he was As convinced, he, was, to do. Yeah. he was convinced this was a, uh, a, a, a fake story, uh, that these boys had made up this, uh, you know, crazy story to get out of a logging contract. He, he came up with a, a idea that, uh, Mike Rogers was behind on his contract, and by coming up with a story, they could somehow benefit by getting out of the contract and maybe somehow still getting paid. But this was completely untrue. He also tried to accuse Mike of defrauding the federal government because the National Park Service, which paid them to, or not the National Park Service, but the Forestry Service right. that was protecting and overseeing this park, accepted bids from contractors. So Mike, you know, put in bids to clear a certain amount of underbrush. And uh, 
Philip came up with the idea that Mike had actually defrauded this forestry service and was a, potentially a federal crime, which was totally ridiculous. But people bought it, it you know. And uh, until the affidavits from the Forest Service contracting officers mm-hmm. completely uh, uh, poo pooed the idea that there was any way such a story could benefit Mike in any way. You know, it's amazing, uh, Philip's. Um, archives are actually in Philadelphia, where I live, at the American Philosophical Society. So uh, through a process of working on some other projects with Kathy Martin and Stanton Friedman, they took me in and showed me the process of digging for archives. And I spent three days reading letters back and forth between Mike Rogers and and some of the other people involved in the story, Cleve Baxter and some of the APRO people, Jim Lorenzo, many, many letters back and forth and letters with Mike Rogers and the crew. And it was absolutely amazing to see how he would audio tape telephone conversations, then repeat them back, but he would change and excerpt parts he didn't like, and he would make it look like they made statements they didn't make. And then he would Picking argue, he would argue yeah. points that were absurd, and you'd get exhausted. You yeah. could re- just reading it, you got exhausted reading it. I could see what Mike Rogers went through. He deliberately exhausted the patience that people had, so they lost their patience with him, and then that made them look like they were being unreasonable, and he was just being lost. Logical. So mm-hmm. he was really notorious that, for this. That is always the thing with skeptics. And uh, a good friend, Micah Hanks, that is here as well, you know, he talks about how sometimes the skeptics will come up with ideas that are even more way out there, even more just uh, ridiculous than what is actually said to have happened. Ha- yes, I would call it harebrained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, the the, the reverse uh, or converse of Occam's razor, to, yeah. to, to be sure, uh, hypotheticals beyond hypotheticals, uh, like uh, trying to explain uh, things as a plasma uh, energy thing or some sort of uh, esoteric uh, f- physical phenomena that may or may not even exist, uh, totally unstudied, unconfirmed, and, and that's more likely than, yeah. than what and, and what happens observed. is the listening public on the other end, whether they're reading or listening or trying to follow this, it gets so convoluted that they can't follow a logical train of thought, yeah. and that's that, the intention. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that's the point of it. It's very much, it's, it's very much psychological warfare in a kind of in, Completely. In that's uh, a great way to put it. And of course, Philip was also involved in offering bribes, and we bring this out in yeah. the documentary yeah. film. Towards the end, um, we kind of really show the deliberate attack that went on trying Trying to debunk this story that happened for the, the the debunking process went on for a good twenty five, almost thirty years. Trying to continue to go after and attack and and put down the veracity of this story, but there were too many people involved in it. It made an international news. You you could verify it. I talked to people all over town. They said, "Yeah, I remember that." I yeah. So, and Travis, I, I want to get you in here, and and I I want to do at some point with you. Um, over Skype, over phone, but when we're back in Nashville, a more full-scale interview. But for people that may not be familiar with your case, what is the uh, what is the basic uh, what is the basic gist of it? What what happened to you out there in 1975? Well, um, started out as an ordinary work day, and seven of us uh, uh, putting in a long, hard day's work in the woods. Uh, 
uh, encountered this object on the way home. I got out and went up to get a closer look, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> but I was struck by a blast of energy from this craft that, you know, for many years I, I took as being some sort of, you know, an attack on me, as, uh, like a defensive weapon or something of that nature. And uh, uh, my uh, crewmates, thinking that I'd been killed, you know, took off and... Um, when uh, they were unable to find uh, me or my body, uh, they went to get help from the sheriff, who, you know, at first uh, the crew was not made aware of the fact that the lawmen were suspecting that they had uh, killed me and hidden my body on the mountain there and yeah. had made up the most unlikely cover story um, for my disappearance. But uh, time on board the craft was... Uh, pretty horrific, and, you know, the movie depicted it that way. But after, you know, decades, I, I come to a, a clear understanding of the circumstances um, as being probably just something that was necessitated by the fact that I was inadvertently injured by this blast of energy, you know, something that I had actually caused by unexpectedly getting so close and, uh, you know, some sort of a incidental uh, discharge of energy that probably, you know, severely injured or killed me. And that they actually, you know, after all, just taken me aboard to, to revive me. Right. And, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, evidence on the ground. Uh, uh, there were Geiger counter readings taken during the search and uh, subsequent uh, evidence that was discovered in the surrounding trees that there had been a powerful radiation source there. And that, uh, you know, might have been the source of the injury that uh, made it necessary to keep me so long to try to, um, you know, correct the damage. You were gone for five days, uh, correct? Was it five days from the time? That yeah, it was five days and six hours from that point uh, when I was struck by that energy. Do, what was uh, the reaction of the people in the town at the initially? Because we were talking a little bit before, like how reactions have changed. Well, initially, the sheriff actually tried to keep a lid on the news and uh, and wanted the the searchers to sort of cooperate in. Um, uh, uh, keep a lid on things, but you know, the, when you got fifty people uh, d involved in a search, they, um, uh, you know, it leaked out pretty quick, and it, it, before very long, it, it was worldwide news. There were yeah. camera crews from other countries in there, and uh, a huge in influx of media into the area, and so that really added to a sort of a. Uh, you know, a circus atmosphere, right, a right. real, you know, schools out sort of free for all that, you know, kind of got out of hand at times. And, but, you know, the suspicion that the men had murdered me grew amongst the town people because to them, although a murder was not a comfortable uh, alternative explanation for the report, it was still preferable to the idea that, you know, people could be kidnapped by invading monsters, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the 
and you were telling me before we were having a little bit of conversation, you say now people come up to you in the street and they, you know, say hello. It's there, there's no embarrassment in no Yeah, my family's in town. Well, I'd like you to meet them, you know. Yeah. Could you sign this for my kids? Uh, you know, can I get a picture with you? That kind of stuff, which is a dramatic turnabout. And after decades of, uh, you know, sort of virtual ostracism. Yeah, everybody's like, that's the guy that was abducted by aliens. And yeah. now it's, mm-hmm. you know, oh, look, that's the guy that was abducted by aliens. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like a completely different, yeah. you know, feeling. Yeah. I did want to ask you um, about the experience that you had, um, how that changed you personally. Well, you know, I, I think I developed a little personal armor. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was pretty outraged by some of that uh, sort of accusations, you know, the, the way they were digging into everything, calling every associate, you know, former employers. Uh, uh, but, you know, the skeptics were quite selective about what they would publish, you know. People, the, those closest to me, the people who knew me, you know, uh, gave positive reviews of uh, my character, but they were looking for something negative. Uh, the chief skeptic called all the bars in town to see if he could get any bad stories about me. When they said he never comes in here, the, that fact was just left out of the report, you know. Yeah. Uh, so anything negative that they could find, they would put a spin on it. Anything positive was just overlooked. I, I've always wondered about that in relationship to the UFO skeptics and how they always have to bring alcohol uh-huh. and drugs uh-huh. into the picture. Because these people are out of their minds. Yeah. Unlike us level-headed scientific <laughs> you know, you know, rational people. I, I drink beer, and I can tell you I've never seen a UFO because yeah. I'm drinking alcohol. It's yeah. just like, it, it, it's, it's just as an aside, that's just something that is just ludicrous to me. Well, Them boys would have had to have been drinking out there on the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Robbins is here with us once more. Hello, Peter. Good to see you again. <laughs> I, I want to, let's talk about your uh, involvement with this film, uh, how um, you got involved with Jennifer. I mean, I know that you've known Travis for, I think, a very long time. Well, um, I can't say I've known him for a very long time, but the (laughs) first time I heard Travis speak was um, when he was beginning to speak in public with Mike Rogers. And it was at a conference that my co-author and I, still working on Left at Eastgate, were also speaking at. Um, Larry and I had both read Travis's book when it came out, Larry and Travis have things in common in terms of character strength, dealing with attacks over the decades, and Larry kind of identified with him. I was just kind of in awe of him. He wasn't like me in that um, I'm a bit of a ham. Uh, I like being up in front of a crowd. Um, He didn't look like he was enjoying being up there. Our sense was that he felt... um, a certain obligation to be there, present himself. Um, You know, um, we went on over the years to occasionally speak at the same conferences, became acquaintances, and I think good acquaintances and ultimately friends. And in 2010, uh, I was still working as a, uh, a consultant and an advisor to the city of Roswell, working out of their mayor's office, uh, at a distance, of course. 
And one of my responsibilities that year had been to organize the conference. Uh, Travis had been included in it as a speaker, of course. And so was Jesse Marcel. Uh, Jesse, at the time, his health was not good. His wife was concerned, and she had asked me uh, some weeks beforehand if I had anybody on my staff um, who could hang with him, be his gal Friday and the like. I told him (laughs) her no, and that my budget, frankly, had run through, but let me get back to her. I called Jennifer, who by that point was a a dear friend and very close colleague. We've worked on literally dozens of events together over the years and, you know, close to each other's families and the like. And I essentially said, Jennifer, this is um, the profile. This is the job I need you for. I not only can't cover your expenses, but you're going to have to, you know, put yourself up, rent a car, be with Jesse straight through, and when you're not, I'll need you to do other things. Jennifer, of course, knowing, knowing a good deal, immediately signed on to the project. And the very last night, um, Jennifer had never met Travis, and uh, Travis's son was there. Wh- which son, again, was there? That- um, Clifton? Clifford, yeah, yeah and, a, and an old friend of yours. Um, and the five of us went out to dinner together. And over dinner, um, Jennifer, who's a filmmaker, um, that she's zoned in on is here is arguably one of the highest visibility people ever to emerge in, in this field, the subject of a major Hollywood motion picture, uh, who probably an understatement to say it appeared on dozens of documentaries over the years, who had become iconic for that section of us that are serious about this subject. And yet he had nothing except for his book that, you know, he might draw a revenue stream from or anything. And um, I'm just very proud that I made the introduction and then Jennifer presented the idea of the project. Um, and they worked together. I occasionally came in and out. I'm one of the talking heads on it. Um, And this extraordinary documentary emerged as a film fanatic and somebody who loves documentary filmmaking since I was a kid. My hope was not just that it would be a good UFO documentary, a very good one, but that it would be an important documentary, period, that it would transcend the subject matter. Um, so in a nutshell, that's my part in this. And, um, um, one of the coolest things about this conference is, you know, the need to economize and things. Um, uh, Travis and I are once again, roommates here (laughs) and, uh, having a great time and it's all going too fast as good times do. If I can interject, Adam, Peter's being very humble, um, He's a humble guy. Peter is actually an associate producer on this project, and, and it's, a, it's a small credit for the amount of support and thinking that he helped me with in beginning to frame where and how we were going to broach this project. Like I said, it's a monumental step to start of think. How do you wrap your brain around this story, and how do you attempt to tell it 
And um, I went back and forth with several outlines and conceptual ideas with Peter. And finally, we narrowed down on the idea that in order to really make a breakthrough film and to do something different with this story, if we approached it from the perspective of Travis and what he went through and make it a personal story about him rather than about the UFO event, it might be a breakthrough film a decent documentary that could make it into art houses and things rather than just a unique another DVD in the UFO world that never really, you know, is worth its weight in gold. Like, like there's how can we focus, do something unique here? There's also a focus in, in Fire in the Sky and in the Paranormal Witness documentary that I've seen. There's also a focus that's on the other guys. Yes. Um, there's a lot of focus on them. Um, and, well, and that it, is important. It, it affected but, all of them. It but, affected all of them. But how do you do a story about yeah. all of them? And still, when you do a story about focused on the UFO event, the story then becomes a UFO story. And yeah. there are a lot of people that just say, well, I'm not going to watch a documentary about UFOs. They're not real. There's no important <laughs> point to that. So this is, that's the reason I called it Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. Mm. It's not just about Travis. It is about Travis and what happened to him and the other men and the other people in the town, the police, the officers, the, the police chiefs, the polygraph people, his family, his brother. It, it impacted many, many people, but it's taken from the perspective of a personal journey, a personal uh, expose on his life and the things that, uh, how, how this event really negatively affected many aspects of Travis's life. Right. So I think as people watch the film, they begin to put themselves in the position that Travis went through, where they can begin to imagine, my gosh, if this was me. And one of the other reasons why the film is having such important impact is there are many people that have had similar experiences, maybe quite not as quite as dramatic, but like Travis, they have been ostracized. They have been alienated within their family and their friends and their professional communities, and they're relating to this film. I've been putting the film in mainstream film festivals, mm. not particularly UFO or sci-fi film festivals, but I've been focused yeah. on mainstream festivals. I've won good. over 10 yeah. awards, and it's continuing to win awards. And, and my goal is the hope that it gets picked up by a network, it gets purchased. I, I make back some of the investment money and maybe actually double my investment so I can actually pay myself a small salary for the last five years of working on this film. It would be nice. It would be very nice. And if that can happen, I think this film can begin to serve as a little more of a breakthrough for mainstream documentary stories and personal stories that involve a UFO topic. Yeah. I'd like to add... And obviously, um, my objectivity on this can be legitimately questioned. Uh, being deep involved in this field for decades, um, this is a, a unique documentary, it, and one that I think is quietly devastating to um, a, a debunking mindset or a mean-spirited skeptic. It balances the humanity of this story of real people and the absolutely courtroom level evidences that one could literally um, win uh, a legal action against if such things were judged in courts of law. Um, I keep several copies that I use for loaning out to friends 
to spark discussion. Or, you know, if, um, you know, I love you, Pete, but you're a little quirky and, you know, you and your UFOs, uh, it has quieted them and sobered them. And I think given them an opportunity, maybe one that they unconsciously wanted to step out of that role a bit and open their minds to the fact that, good God, these things actually happen. And it has changed my worldview. It's also in, um, um, I think, in, in the most elevated kind of not dry, but sort of PBS level entertaining in, uh, in it, you know, intellectually entertaining as well as the dynamic tension, even though you know the story. It's beautifully scored. It's beautifully filmed. And like any great work of, of creation, filmmaking is an art. Um, it came together organically, fitting, refitting the pieces, augmenting them. Uh, it's a terrific, terrific film. And I'm really proud to have been a part of it. And Travis hasn't uh, told me he hates it. He's, I, think he's, I think he's been happy with it. He didn't uh, try to strangle me afterwards. But I took a lot of risks. I mean, the first time I showed it, Travis had really never seen it. He'd seen some sections of it. But I pushed really, really hard to get this done, which is almost unheard of. I tried to do the major section of the editing on this final piece in about four months. And a lot of people are taking, you know... 10 years to do documentary films so um, it kind of came together with a collection of pieces as I described we got started working on the conference and then I shot a lot of great interviews and then how to use the best of them I only have less than half of the fabulous experts that I did interview in the film um, because I just couldn't use them all and I had to narrow the story but I'd like to come up with a compendium DVD and eventually make uh, available for sale a two or three component DVD like I did on my like former project. Features. Yeah, uh, I did uh, the Disclosure Dialogues a couple of years before, and that's a five DVD set where we have a documentary, oh, wow. but then we have the behind-the-scenes footage that's available to people, these private conversations. So there's wonderful additional uh, interviews done that we'll eventually release. Excellent. Travis, what do you... Um, what do you... What is your greatest hope to come out of this uh, this documentary? Well, you know, over the years, you know, it's been over 40 now. There's been dozens of programs that have been broadcast and produced, and this one really stands out for its, you know, balance and completeness and and um, thoroughness and, and, and covering things that just weren't covered before. So, you know, uh, just like with the book, just like with my intentions in being out here at all in the first place is to get people to pay attention to the facts, you know, I open my book with the comment, you know, first, educate yourself about what is being said, you know, there was sort of a knee-jerk atta- attack from the skeptics, they were attacking it before they even had the most remote idea of what had been reported, they had three men riding in a car instead of seven men in a truck, so, yeah. I mean, with, with the <laughs> picky, facts, picky, that picky. sketchy, and then already be against it, you know we have yeah. a... Uh, an a priori uh, prejudice against it before we even uh, uh, look at the facts. So, yeah, some people, um, I, you know, I've screened the film in many uh, settings. Um, 
literally, you know, veteran centers, a lot of, you know, MUFON conferences. I'm a state section director for MUFON in Pennsylvania. So MUFON immediately jumped on this, picked it up and wanted to screen it at all their conferences around the country. And I've tried to work as closely as I can with them because that's, of course, already the educated community, the educated crowd. But I've screened it in libraries and in um, college settings and things like that. And some of the people who watch the film come up and they say, you know, uh, three quarters of the way through the film, you go off and you start to talk about Philip Class. Like, I was a little lost there. Anyone who's read Travis's book realizes that he spends at least a third of his book talking about the 25 years of, of deliberate activity that Philip Class was involved in and, and the nefarious, you know, malicious acts that were, took place and the bribes and things like this. So I knew I had to deal with the class material. And I think that the the treatment we did with Philip Class is curt. It's to the point. It's not over the top. It's about seven and a half, eight minutes part of the film. And it's an introduction to the deliberate deception that takes place in many UFO stories. But I put it in there to describe how Class really pushed Travis's buttons and Travis's story. But particularly, it was Mike Rogers who had to deal directly with yeah. Philip Class. So we dealt with that as as directly as we could and, and you know, really tried to hit those points over the head, like putting the hail, hammer on top of the head on things that were undisputable. And I'm hoping that people who watch this will then go back, read Travis's book, and then continue to research the other things that Phil tried to debunk. In fact, I, um, I'm probably not supposed to say, but there's a new book coming out that will really yes. go into a greater expose on this. I was just And um, Kathy Martin and uh, Stan Friedman are uncovering like a hundred times more material than I put into this. I mean, I did some of the research with them at the American Philosophical Society, which was one of many archives they went into. So I'm hoping that this begins to open up uh, people's eyes. There's there's deception going on in many, 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 many fields. In fact, today I was reading about how Merck Sharpen Dome uh, uh, is involved in covering up uh, the uh, mumps, measles, and rubello vaccines uh, that were causing... Um, you know, illnesses in children like autism and other things like this. And this story has been suppressed for years. It's still being suppressed. There was an excellent documentary that came out about this topic. Yeah, and I'm telling you, there's well, something weird going on with this Zika thing it, right now. Yes, yes. So yeah. we, we are moving into an age where things are being revealed. There is transparency happening, transparency in government and transpar transparency in, in, in medicine and in science and in archaeology. And it's just the nature of the future as we expand in our consciousness people are finding these things out and it's being revealed and there's access to information in new ways in this world that we live in today very different from 1975 well the examination of Phil class's activities is not to uh, not overkill or beating a dead right. horse the important uh, thing here is to recognize that there is a kind of a uh, a concerted an organized effort to suppress certain areas of knowledge and people need to be aware of that because even though you know, class has passed on and there's some closure here with the Freedom of Information Act, uh, FBI file on his activities, those sorts of things, uh, it, it, it's still a kind of a feature of, of the media and the, and, the, and the forum out here 
that this sort of activity is ongoing and people need to be aware and for, forewarned and forearmed against the kind of uh, uh, use of propaganda techniques on the part of people who are yeah, actually in some cases acting on behalf of uh, covert government agencies, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other big focus that we made in in this film, Travis, the, the true story of Travis Walton, is we wanted to tell the onboard the craft experience in a real true documentary way, unlike what Fire in the Sky did. That's one of the major diversions that Fire in the Sky took. There were others, but that was a critical one. And they, they made it seem like a much scarier, much more typical abduction type story because fear sells. And it, not that this experience wasn't fearful, but oh, what yeah, we... That's, that's definitely right. the way I felt at the time. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. uh, in retrospect, I've reanalyzed my impressions. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's another unique you know, um, uh, selling point, if it were, uh, around what we attempted to co- accomplish yeah. in the film. Yeah, and what's new. And, you know, some of the uh, research that uh, we did, uh, I was a part of the team, uh, Ben Hansen was there, and uh, uh, information that was gathered at the site. Uh, new stuff after 40 years that we're discovering there. Like yeah. some of the tree ring research. Right. We didn't anticipate that, but we're right. up there filming. We got the guys there. We're walking around. We're looking at the trees. And, and it was Travis and Ben and I that were saying, you know, there seems to be like a directionality. Not only is it their increased growth here, but there seems to be an epicentric uniqueness to it. Like the trees were growing more on one side than the other. And I started running around filming all these trees in a circle. And I seen Travis, you know, and, and Travis had noticed it before, but it wasn't until we were really there and we were starting to take pictures and we had a drone camera that was shooting down and that the drone camera was oh, watching neat. us run around nice. and then I'm pointing yeah. to the camera and I'm pointing to the trees. And that's when we realized, wow, there's an epicentric nature to this. So trees grew on the side where the craft was more than behind it. And this also, uh, Ben pointed out, along with Travis, that a documentary had been done by the National Geographic. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that Uh, a little more? While they were on the site, uh, we examined a stump of a tree that had been logged the year before the incident. So this tree had never been exposed to the UFO. And here we had a tree 200 years in age, and we could examine the growth rings and see very little variation going back 200 years. So that served as a benchmark comparison for people who would claim that some other cause was causing this surge in growth that that just didn't exist for, for 200 years before it happened. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, so tree ring evidence is really quite significant. So we'd really like to get, like, you know, a dendrology department maybe uh, to come out and study it. There's some forestry uh, specialty schools right in Arizona. Uh, So far, I haven't been able to get their interest in this project to work with me more closely. I think the problem is is that so many people see this as just, you know, so out there that they're not willing to touch it and risk their... Tenure or their somebody, somebody better get on the ball because these things are rotting away and yeah. it's not going to be there forever. It's not going to be there forever. I was suspectful of that myself. I'm actually a uh, graduate of the University of Arizona. I have a Bachelor of Science degree from that uh, school and I approached the dendrology department, which is world renowned, hoping that as a contributor to the school and as an alum, uh, they would be interested in meeting with me. Um, 
I was actually properly escorted off the campus wow, with my wow, camera. Wow. And, you know, that, that's a world-famous uh, tree ring uh, laboratory there and no. world-known for some of the research that's gone on. But, uh, you know, it won't hurt to try again with you know, approach a different individual and maybe see you know, with a different approach if yes. we can get some cooperation. Yeah. Now, in, in, in all defense to uh, the university, um, I did try to make inroads and I kind of showed up with impressive looking equipment without them anticipating I was going to be there. And, you know, there's privacy issues on campus with students and you don't want to be filming people that shouldn't be there. And, you know... Um, I kind of take the approach that I'd rather ask for forgiveness than for permission, because a lot of times when you ask for permission in life, people just say no, and then you never get stuff done. And if I did that in my life, there's a lot of things I would have never accomplished. So um, I had the, the right intention and the right purpose, but um, for whatever reason, they nobody in the department wanted to touch this topic. So then I printed out uh, some very interesting research from Chernobyl and uh, literally left it on the desk of every researcher there. Hmm. Uh, the trees around the Chernobyl incident uh, exhibited similar 33 to 36% growth rate within a five-mile radius of Chernobyl. And the trees that were studied there, this is a Polish university that did this study, um, the trees were Scott pines, which are basically basically a cousin or a relative to the ponderosa pines What's they're in it's a, they're yeah. in a similar um, you know type of tree similar type of altitude similar type of growth environment and there they grew for 15 to 17 years at a 33 to 36% growth rate however they were surrounded by the radiation so there was no directional effect there they it was pretty uniform uh, in terms of uh, you know thickness of mm-hmm. the rings from right. the core of the tree. It wasn't just one localized spot as it would be in that case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully maybe in the future that someone from that dendrology department will get back to me and say, hey, I finally read that paper. Best of luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, you actually have, um, I think, two versions of the film, one that you have on the DVD and the other one that you showed. You're actually kind of re-editing it now. Well, I, I am. I, I showed... Uh, um, Part of a new version, not really the the complete new version, but I um, I ran into some rights issues uh, with some of the archive footage that's in this production. I was originally hoping not to have that problem, but I ran yeah. into that, and that actually forced me to have to re-edit and then it gave me the idea that you know maybe I can actually sell this to a network. Maybe I can get it more out into the mainstream, and if I can, I think it it like I was saying earlier, since it's a, approached from a, one. Per- person's particular perspective, Travis's, it's not really a UFO story, it's a personal humanistic story. I'm hoping that with a re-edit and with new footage and with additional interviews that I've now shot, I'm coming up with a unique product that would be an exclusive sale to possibly history, sci-fi, Discovery Channel, uh, maybe History 2, because it is an historical piece. It it kind of borders on sci-fi because it seems unreal. It's interesting. I hadn't put the film in sci-fi festivals because it was a true story, and I thought that would undermine the whole project of it. But everyone's been encouraging me, no, Jen, put it in sci-fi film festivals. So I put it in one in New York not too long ago, uh, the Philip K. Dick Festival, and it won. It swept their awards. And Peter and I were there together, and I was stunned because I thought, what is this saying? Here, this is a true story. It's not a science fiction, but it won in a science fiction film festival. So uh, that's changing my thinking, and I'm realizing that maybe the market for this is sort of sci-fi to get it out there. Um, 
I think there's and, a hunger and I see for this, this um, uh, you know, the the rewards from ha- uh, you know having this film become uh, gain a wider audience goes beyond uh, increasing acceptance of the truth of what happened to me. It, it's uh, in a general sense, in a broader sense, encouraging people to think outside the box, to realize that very often initial reports are disinformation, and that to look look deeper and, and uh, you know uh, consider the possibility of many things that they might not have, uh, you know, they might have had a knee jerk uh, tendency to reject in, in the past that maybe. You know, take a closer look at things, many things. Yeah, Travis and I actually had a wonderful warm reception by a gentleman named Jim Ledwith, who's involved with the Sonoma Film Festival. Uh, I entered it in the Sonoma Film Festival. It got accepted. Jim picked it up and said, let's do a little mini conference there. Uh, So we were just there in the early part of April. Um, It was really wonderful to get an official selection from the Sonoma Festival. Um, That's considered a laurel and an award in itself. It's like a, a nomination when you're nominated the Academy Awards, you know, you use that nomination as part of your resume. Well, the same is true for a filmmaker. Once you're selected to screen at a festival, it's, it's a huge honor because they get thousands and thousands of films and they have to narrow it down. Um, and as part of that film festival, I had the unique experience of being able to go on a tour of Industrial Light and Magic well, in nice. San Francisco. That's nice. So while yeah. I'm there, um, it also happened to be my birthday. So my, the, my phone is ringing constantly and there's all these people wishing me happy birthday and I got the attention of the the two uh, tour guides and they kept saying how come your phone keeps ringing and I told them then they said you know well what film did you make and I said well I made this film about Travis Walton they went well do you know that you know Lucas was involved. He did all the special effects on, you know, the Paramount film originally before he had Industrial Light and Magic. And and they said, by the way, this is the UFO we used. And here's, you know, this and this. So they were walking around showing me these artifacts that were used in the film and taking pictures of me. So it was like a wonderful culmination of events that just happened very synchronistically. So I'm hoping that, you know, more mainstream film festivals pick it up. I'm also reaching out, and this is sort of like, Uh, uh, Before you go on, I just wanted to interject that at that film festival, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, James Garner's daughter, his only offspring, and she said that she had made a point of attending in order to meet me to inform me that her father had told her that uh, he did indeed believe our report. Oh, wow. And that uh, she just wanted me to know that although he played the part of being a skeptical person. Yeah. that uh, he was the sheriff that, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah he, playing the part of the sheriff in the movie. So yeah. that was a pleasure to meet her. Yeah. So I am outreaching to uh, fans and people who have seen the film to continue to send the uh, YouTube trailer to their friends. Uh, As a filmmaker, the way you get a network interested in what you've produced is you get, it's a numbers game. You get Facebook hits, YouTube hits uh, to a significant amount so that the network says, hey, there's already an interest in this topic. So people who identify with this story and people who want to share it should reach out, should contact me. I post personal uh, reviews. I have some wonderful endorsements from people like Paul Hellier and and um, even Edgar Mitchell was one of the first people to watch the film and he offered me an endorsement, which I thought was really wonderful. I've been a friend of his for many years, but I was really honored that he did that. So uh, you don't have to be famous to offer an endorsement to the film. Yes. I would love it. I'll post them on the website and if you're interested in hosting a screen 
screening, they can contact me through the website, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. The more interest that comes around this film, the more people get to know his story, the more this can have maybe a worldwide impact. There's no reason why this film can't play in Brazil. It's going to be screening in Greece this year, uh, the original version with uh, a trip that Peter Robbins and Richard Dolan are making, and Rich and... Peter were both heavily involved in the film. Rich did one of the most intense first interviews that I had for the film. So uh, I'm really hoping that there is uh, a citizen's interest in helping to bring this film more out to the public and encourage a network to pick it up. Absolutely. Peter, was there anything that you wanted to add? Okay. Uh, Jennifer, tell us where people can contact you, uh, the website, by the film, and Travis, where... Your website and people can contact Mine's you. real quick, so I'll just interject right. that now. TravisWalton.com is my website. I'm also on Facebook. The easiest film uh, uh, website for me is um, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. That's easy for people to remember. Yes. I also have a productions website. It's called On Wings, but people have a hard time spelling that. It's O-N-W-I-N-G-E-S um, Productions. Dot com. They can find me there, too. But if they go to TravisWaltonTheMovie.com, they can link to the other website. They can see my other work if they go to the On Wings production site. And they can find me at PeterRobbinsNY.com or on Facebook. Yes. And I wanted to say real quick that uh, one of the first... Oh, 1986, I was probably I was 10 years old. I remember I get this um, video from the video store. That was um, a Nova documentary on UFOs that actually spent all its time debunking them. But uh, it was your case, Travis, and the Rendlesham case. <laughs> so this is a <laughs> this is they're like gonna, a full circle, circle for me. Set the here. record straight with a bunch of disinformation <laughs> that's in many cases been disproved a long time ago. And I think I even knew at ten years old that that, that, that what they were saying was complete BS. <laughs> We're delighted to have played a role Let's in a formative in your childhood. Actually, <laughs> actually the, the, the explanation for yours was that you had been struck by ball lightning oh, and that, that you were wandering around the woods hallucinating. <laughs> and didn't die. And I believe Rendlesham was a lighthouse. Um, yes, and Larry was a wannabe and wrote himself into the story. Yeah. <laughs> you got it right. Something like that. See, like, there we go with uh, Occam's razor. What could be more exotic than ball lightning and uh, inducing <laughs> hallucinations that don't kill you? Yeah. Uh, is, is that more prosaic than a UFO? I'm not so sure. <laughs> that is the philosophy I subscribe to, and I, I'm pleased to have one of the few moments in the film that usually engenders a laugh, which is after laying out this ludicrous idea that the guys came up with this confabulation <laughs> craziness to get out of a contract, which I had mentioned this loopiness to a friend of mine, and they said, well, perhaps they could have said, you know, somebody's grandfather died. <laughs> yeah, instead of <laughs> my friend got killed by a UFO. And, uh, <laughs> Just a thought. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam, for doing what you're doing and for having us on the show. It was a great honor. Thank you. And Travis, thank you for being here. We'll join you again sometime. Absolutely. I want to thank you guys for listening, and we will be back on Conspiranormal.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.